Now please turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Chapter 15. And we'll be considering the last part of this chapter today, starting in verse 23 and going to the end. <clears throat> Romans 15, 23 through 33. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that, by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Father in heaven, as we come to this passage of scripture, we ask you to instruct us from it. We pray that in it, uh, Christ Jesus will be exalted. Uh, bless us as we consider the scriptures together now. We ask in his name, amen. General Dwight David Eisenhower was, uh, was known to have made this statement. Eisenhower said, plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Now, Eisenhower, as, as I'm sure you know, was the Supreme Allied Commander during the latter part of World War II. He was very, very closely involved in the planning of the Normandy invasion, what we call D-Day. So why would a guy who gave so much of his life and had such a high stake in planning, say something like that. Plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. I think it's because of something uh, that was uh, brought to light by another uh, famous military figure, uh, the, the German Field Marshal Helmut von Moltke. He's the one who said, uh, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Or, you know, we could put that in biblical language, too. Proverbs 16, 9. <clears throat> the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So whether you're talking about plans for war or plans for everyday life, providence happens. We make our plans, 
and then God shows us that he has other plans in many cases. Now that doesn't mean, when you think about Psalm 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That doesn't mean it's bad to plan, and it doesn't mean that God in his word is saying you shouldn't bother planning. That's not what it's saying at all. We should plan. Planning is good. It's indispensable, according to Eisenhower. But just remember, providence. Make your plans, but plan that God's plans might not line up with yours. Now, Paul's letter to Rome is considered by many to be his his masterpiece. Uh, And it's full of rich instruction in Christian doctrine, theology, practical material as well. But then when we get to this portion of Romans and Paul's starting to kind of land the plane, we're not getting explicit instruction. We're not getting explicit doctrinal content. And, And what this part of Romans tends to remind us of is the fact that Romans is a letter. It's not a systematic theology textbook. It's, um, it's a real letter written by a real apostle writing to a real congregation in a real city with real people and real problems and real issues. And so when you read the scripture, and particularly when you read the New Testament letters, you've always got to remember that every single letter in the Bible is at the same time both a letter with a human author and original recipients, but at the same time, it is authoritative, God-breathed scripture. It's both things, and it never is less one or the other. This is God's word, and it was written for our instruction. So even though this passage might not be Paul laying out teaching so much, There is instruction for us in it. And I think one of the main messages of this particular passage in Romans is that the Lord God has a perfect plan to draw the nations to his Son. That's why we read the passage that we did from Isaiah. The Lord God has a perfect plan to draw the nations to his Son. And this is We'll consider this in three points. First of all, we have Paul's his apostolic ministry report. Secondly, we, he speaks of his plan to visit to Rome. And then, finally, he describes Christ's church as a connectional church. <clears throat> so first of all, apostolic ministry report. If you read the, uh, the blurb in the, in the Thursday email newsletter, you remember I kind of made comparison of, of Paul's letter to the Romans and, and this part of it in particular, to the kind of reports we sometimes receive from missionaries on the field that we support. Because they do report back to us. They want us to know uh, what they're up to. You know, we're supporting them with our money, God's money, but we're sending it to them to support them. And they understand that it's important to let us know how, they're, how our missionary dollars are being uh, used of God. And so they write about what's been going on, what they've done. They write about what they're anticipate in the future, and then they will almost always ask for prayer for a few specific things. Paul does all of those things right here in this passage, and he gives here his apostolic ministry report. He writes about his accomplishments, or if you remember what we saw back in verse 18 of this same chapter, 
Remember, Paul said, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Um, and so Paul places great emphasis on the fact that he doesn't, he doesn't take credit for the work or for the success of it. He says, it is Christ at work. I'm just his vessel. I'm just his agent. But he's the one who's doing the glorious work. So keep that in mind as he talks about his accomplishments. <clears throat> now, his missionary labors had been extensive. If you look at verse 19 in this chapter, he talks about his itinerary. He says, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And again, I hope you read that newsletter, that e-newsletter that comes out on Thursdays. This week, in particular, the, the graphic in it was a map. And it showed all of Paul's missionary journeys. And the places he just mentioned in that verse are right there on it. You can see Illyricum. And of course, you can see Jerusalem. And you can see how far apart they are from each other. And therefore, you can see the extent of his travels, the distances he went to in order to proclaim Christ to the nations. Illyricum was a coastal region and is just across the Adriatic Sea from Italy. And Paul had evangelized, therefore, most of the Mediterranean world. And his model was this. He would hit the major cities. He would start in a synagogue and he'd preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews. Oftentimes, some of the Jews were converted to Christ. Most of the time, some of the Jews were very angry. Uh, Paul would preach that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, and so they would reject Paul's message. And then, from that point, Paul would take his little core group and reach out to the Gentiles. That's how he rolled. And he did that in major cities throughout the Mediterranean. And then, as he moved on, uh, it was implicit that those churches that were established in cities would then branch out. And the gospel would radiate out from these churches that had been planted by Paul into the towns and the regions around them. That's how Paul operated. And so when he says in our text today that <clears throat> he speaks of these regions, he says he has no more room for work in these regions, he's talking about everything east of where he was when he was writing. And actually some that was a bit west of him. He was writing from Corinth. And so when he tells the church in Rome, I don't have any more room for work in these regions, he said, I've done all I can do. Pretty much throughout Greece, throughout Asia Minor. And so therefore, there's, there's nowhere else to go but west. And that's what he plans to do. <clears throat> so that's his report about his accomplishments and what he'd been doing for the gospel. Then what does he see and uh, foresee in the coming days? But now is the way our text began. But now, since I have no longer any room for work in these regions, <clears throat> that but now is set in contrast to what we see in verse 22, because he was speaking to the Romans about uh, he'd been so often hindered from coming to them. He wanted to come to them. He dearly desired to visit the church in Rome, but he'd been so busy spreading the gospel. But now, he can come. If you'll turn with me back to the first chapter of Romans, Paul's really kind of recapitulating what he said to them in chapter 1. Because in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, he said to them, For I long to see you, 
that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Verse 13, he said, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. So Paul earnestly wanted to visit this church, but he'd been busy doing his mission. But now, he says, the opportunity's come at last. I'm finally going to come see you in Rome, Uh, but I have one more thing I have to do. He has to go to Jerusalem on a mission of mercy to bring aid to the Christians there. See that in verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. He'd taken up this collection, you see, or the churches had, and this collection had been a multi-year project. If you've read the book of Acts, if you're familiar with the New Testament epistles, you know that this very collection that Paul is now going to carry to Jerusalem is a topic of conversation in several other places in the New Testament. For instance, if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16, that's what he's talking about there. 1 Corinthians 16, this opening paragraph. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, which is where he was writing when he wrote to Rome, by the way. I'll mention that again. He says to the church at Corinth, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Apparently they did seem to think that it was advisable, which is why Paul is going to go. <clears throat> you also read about it. That's what most of chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians are about, uh, this collection and some instruction that Paul gave relative to it. It's also mentioned in Acts 24 when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. He's ex- having to explain to the Roman um, consul <clears throat> why he was there, what he was doing. He said, I came bringing this gift. So Paul, before he can go to Rome, he has this one last errand. He's going to go all the way to Jerusalem to deliver this this love offering, this diaconal gift to the saints in Jerusalem. His next target area is Spain. Again, he's he's got nowhere to go but west, and so he's headed west to Spain. He mentions that in verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Mentions it again in 28. When therefore I've completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I'll leave for Spain by way of you, the Romans. Now this is a maybe not the most efficient itinerary But what this itinerary does is it shows us Paul's love for the brethren, number one, and his heart for the lost. His love for the brethren, that he really earnestly wants to go and visit the church in Rome. And his heart for the lost, in that he's willing to go to Spain to carry the message of Christ there. Now think about this. Paul is writing in Corinth. Corinth is roughly 700 miles east of Rome. And yet Paul's going to head further east, Jerusalem. 
In fact, he's going to go 800 miles further east before he can then turn west and go to Rome. John Stott made this comment. He said, when one reflects on the uncertainties and hazards of ancient travel, the almost nonchalant way in which Paul announces his intention to undertake these three voyages is quite extraordinary. You know, if it were me and I wanted to go to Rome that badly, I think I'd just try to get to Rome uh, forthwith, straight a line as possible. But Paul instead is going to go all the way back to Jerusalem to carry this gift. Why would he do that? Why would he complicate his itinerary that way? This is why. Because Paul knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew the nations need to hear about him. His zeal for the gospel would drive him to travel all those miles. Then he's going to Rome. After he takes the gift to Jerusalem, he says he'll come to Rome. For a while is what your English Bible might say. In other words, this isn't going to be a prolonged visit. He's not going to camp out and stay a long time in Rome. He might like to, but it won't be a prolonged visit. But it was one that he earnestly desired, one that he eagerly anticipated. So that's his apostolic ministry report. And, of course, that brings us kind of naturally to a further consideration of this planned visit to Rome. Paul had longed for many years to come to Rome. We saw that in the text already. In fact, uh, the phrase, come to you, uh, happens at the beginning of our text today and at the end and then the third time in the middle. That seems to be kind of a uniting theme, the fact that Paul's saying to the Romans, I want to come to you. It frames the passage. And what was it that Paul hoped for? What were his expectations about this visit to his brothers and sisters in Rome? Well, he had several. And we can go back to Romans chapter 1 again to to find out what some of them were. Paul wanted to visit the church in Rome for their spiritual benefit. If you flip back with me once more to Romans chapter 1 and look at verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul believed very firmly that his visit to Rome would be to their spiritual benefit. And that's one reason he wanted to go. But he also had an anticipation of of a mutual encouragement and benefit that they would derive. Look, in, in verse 32 of our text, he speaks of coming to them with joy and being refreshed in their company. Back in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, When he's talking about imparting a spiritual gift to strengthen them, he says he qualifies it, he further explains it by saying, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He's the apostle. He's the Holy Spirit-inspired apostle, and yet he understood the capacity of ordinary people in the pew to encourage him every bit as much as he could encourage and be a blessing to them. And that's what he hoped for, their spiritual benefit, but also this mutual encouragement. You know, something else he wanted to do while he was there, and he fully expected to do, was to preach the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 15. 
So, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Because Paul loved to tell the story. Just to borrow the words of one of our hymns. He loved to preach the gospel. He loved to tell people about Jesus. Now, I don't know if you ever read that passage and kind of wondered, these people he's writing to in Rome are Christians already. They're already believers. Why does he have to preach the gospel to them? Well, the answer is that we all need to hear the gospel every day. We all need to hear good news every day. So just because you're in Christ and you've received him by faith and because he's given you that new heart and because he's made you a new creature doesn't mean you outgrow the need to hear good news. It doesn't mean you outgrow the gospel. Nobody outgrows the gospel. That's why in that hymn that I referenced a second ago, there's that line about, I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And I think many of you know that experience. You know that sense. You've trusted in Christ, but you still love to hear the gospel. And Paul expected to preach the gospel to the church in Rome. One other thing that he was expecting with reference to this trip, and that was that the Roman church would provide missionary support for him. Look in our text at verse 24. He says, I hope to see you as, in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. It's, to be helped by is a rendering of the Greek word propempo, and it literally means to provide travel assistance. And actually, a lot, of, a lot of scholars and commentators believe that even as early as when Paul was writing Romans, this term had taken on a very technical meaning in the church and had to do with churches sending missionaries, had to do with churches assisting them, providing financial assistance, providing even escorts to be companions and to protect and provide other kinds of help as well. Maybe even give them uh, some references to, oh, when you get to such and such a village, uh, go to the house of so-and-so. He'll provide lodging for you, that kind of thing. That's, that's kind of all that was balled up in this idea of being helped on his way. So you see, churches supporting the work of missionaries is not a new thing. It's, uh, it's kind of been the pattern from the beginning. And Paul finally expresses confidence of Christ's blessing. Look at verse 29. He says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. No doubt when Paul got there, I mean, he's, he's the apostle, right? He expected that while he's among the Christians there, he would teach and he would preach. That was a foregone conclusion as far as he was concerned and probably as far as the church was concerned. And yet he wasn't there. He wasn't going to Rome primarily to work, he is hoping mainly to have this joyful time of refreshment with them. That's what Charles Hodge kind of brings out in, in his commentary when he, he kind of talks about the experiences that, that Paul had had. He says, in Jerusalem, he was beset by unbelieving Jews and harassed by Judaizing Christians. In most other places, he was burdened with the care of the churches. But at Rome, 
which he looked upon as a resting place rather than a field of labor. He hoped to gather strength for the prosecution of his apostolic labors in still more distant lands. And when it comes to uh, being refreshed by the people at Rome and being sent on his way by them, that brings us to our third point about the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and how the church of Jesus Christ is connectional. And I think in almost any denomination or group of Christians of any kind, there's this innate understanding that as the body of Christ and as the church, we are connected. But um, in Presbyterianism, we're very deliberately connectional because the church of Christ is connectional. How is it connected? Well, many, many ways, but we see several in the text. Christ's church is connectional. It's connected via the blessings of diaconal ministry and of relief ministries. That's what he's talking about in 26. He said the churches in Macedonia and the churches in Achaia had been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, far away. But they're their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they heard that they had need. And so they took this collection to help. Because even though they were distant from another, one another geographically, hundreds and hundreds of miles, yet they're united in Christ, and their brothers and sisters were suffering, their brothers and sisters were impoverished, and so the churches in Achaia and Macedonia wanted to help through diaconal relief ministry. Now, when it mentions Macedonia and Achaia, those are two large regions, and they basically comprise northern Greece and southern Greece. So it's that whole land, really. And we read a passage from 1 Corinthians 16 a moment ago, and Paul talks about the instructions he gave to the churches in Galatia about their collection. And if you look again at that map, you see Galatia's way, way off to the west and the north of, of Macedonia and Achaia. So this offering that's been taken was given by churches through, from, throughout this vast region. Why? Because they're connected. They're connected in Christ. And they gave cheerfully. And we read about God loving a cheerful giver in 2 Corinthians and we see that these churches gave cheerfully. In the, in the text that we're looking at this, this morning, verse 27 says, they were pleased to do it. So we're connected through relief ministries and diaconal ministry. We're also connected because the fact is the churches are interdependent. Look at the second part of verse 27. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their, that is the, the Jews, spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. So you've got this financial assistance going out because the spiritual blessings of the Jews, that is the Jews, not the unbelieving Jews, but the Jews who have come to embrace their Messiah, the Jewish Christians, in other words. Those spiritual blessings overflowed from them into the whole earth, to all the Gentiles. And in 
the flip side of that is the financial assistance of the Gentile Christians then goes back to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Writing in the New Bible Commentary, Douglas Moo said, General economic conditions, made worse, no doubt, by the isolation from fellow Jews caused by their Christian profession, had impoverished many of the Jewish believers in and around Jerusalem. Paul felt it to be, not, to be only right for the Gentile Christians to repay with material blessings the spiritual blessings they have inherited from the Jews. And so there's this interdependence. We give and we serve according to what we have. Whatever your gifts are, whatever your spiritual gifts are from God through the Holy Spirit as a son or daughter of God, those are given to you to serve others. And so when Peter and the other apostles were going to the temple not long after the day of Pentecost, going to the temple to worship King Jesus, and they passed by that man who was crippled and was begging. He was hoping for a contribution. And Peter said, you know, I don't have any money to give you. But what I do have, I give you. Get up and walk. So we're interdependent. We're to serve one another with the gifts that we have. <clears throat> so we're connected by... by uh, relief ministry and diaconal work. We're connected by the, the, fact, the, mere, the very fact that we're interdependent, and we're connected through intercessory prayer. Look with me again at verses 30 and 31. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. <clears throat> you notice he starts with this plea, I appeal to you by our Lord Jesus and by the love of the Spirit. What he's kind of saying there is he's, he's saying, if you have any love for Christ, if you have any love for God and for his people, please pray for me. And of course, he's assuming that they do have that love. So it's like he's saying, if you love God, pray for me. You see, prayer is, prayer is work. He says, strive for me. Prayer is labor. Prayer is spiritual warfare. Paul, writing to the Colossian church, spoke of a man who was a prayer warrior, who labored hard in prayer. The guy's name was Epaphras. And he tells the church in Colossae about Epaphras. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Prayer is work. And prayer is cooperation. See how he put it, Paul, in our text? He said, strive together with me in your prayers. He's going to Jerusalem. They're over in Rome. But he's saying, you can strive with me. How? By praying for me. Prayer is cooperation. In Hebrews 13, Pastor Mark preached this text not too long ago. Hebrews 13, verse 3, the writer says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. 
See, through our prayers, we're connected with brothers and sisters all over the world. And Paul asked for three specific prayer requests, just like any good missionary sending a letter to his supporters. His three requests are these. He prays for safety, he prays for mission success, and he prays for a joyful visit to Rome. He asks for safety when he says, pray that I'll be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. When he says unbelievers in Judea, he's talking about Jews that have not embraced the gospel and who, because they've rejected Christ, are hostile to the gospel. And he knows they're dangerous. He knows they might try to mistreat him, and in fact, they did. So he asks the church in Rome, pray. Pray that I'll be delivered from them. He prays for mission success. Pray that that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. And then finally, if he's delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and if the, he gets mission success and he accomplishes his task of taking the gift, then he's saying, if, if I can acquire those things, if God grants those things, then uh, he hopes finally to have this joyful visit to Rome. And he closes the passage, closes the chapter, <clears throat> with his benediction. And that's another way we're connected. Each of us, connected to brothers and sisters everywhere. We're connected via benediction. We're connected through the blessing of God upon his whole church. It's another example of the spiritual blessings of the Jews radiating out to Gentiles. Because, you know, there's that blessing that God commanded Aaron to pronounce over the people of Israel, which we often use here at First Scots at the conclusion of a service. And the only people who were entitled to hear that blessing, the only people who were entitled to receive it were the Jews. But now that blessing is being transmitted out to men, women, and children of every nation. We're connected through that benediction. And when Paul says in verse 33, may the God of peace be with you, He's speaking mostly to Gentiles. That Roman church was predominantly a Gentile church. To put it in the language of the uh, Old Testament prophets, these were people who formerly were not a people, but now they've been brought into the family of God. And they're made eligible to receive his benediction. And so the Lord God has a perfect plan to draw the nations to his son. Let me make a few points of application as we close. First, notice the mission's emphasis in the Christian church. God raises up missionaries to go and carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Some people are called to go, but we're all called to support them. We're all called to pray for them. So lift up your missionaries in prayer. Because when you do, you're striving with them. Maybe you're just not called to go to the foreign mission field or to do inner city missions or things like that. For whatever reason, maybe you just can't. But you can strive with those missionaries. And you do it through your prayers and through your financial support of them. So never forget the missionary emphasis of the church. 
those, those words of Jesus that, that close out the gospel according to Matthew. Go, make disciples of all the nations. That's our job. That's the church's job. Secondly, I want to stress and, and impress upon you the power and the importance of prayer. The power and the importance of prayer. Your prayers are needed. They're needed because God uses them. Let me assure you of something. Your prayers make a difference. They really do. I want you to believe that when you pray. Pray for your missionaries. Pray for those who are in prison. Pray for your brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for their faith. I shudder to think what happens to Christians in North Korea or in Iran or in other parts of the, of the world where Christianity is illegal, where it's oppressed and suppressed. Pray for those who are being persecuted. Pray for the sick. Pray for your elders and your deacons. Your prayers make a difference because God has ordered it that way. I was reflecting, it's been almost exactly four years since Hillary and I first visited First Scots and I came and I preached on a Sunday morning as a candidate to become your, at that time, assistant pastor. And then it was the beginning of 2020 after we'd gotten here and I was installed. And I remember one of the things Pastor Mark said to me when he's giving me the charge, uh, and he, you gotta understand the spirit in which he meant this. He said, uh, God doesn't need you. And he was absolutely right. But he's ordained to use me. And it's the same with your prayers. God doesn't need your prayers, but he chooses to use them, and that's why they're so important. When Alex came to visit me in the hospital, when I almost died of COVID, he sat with me and we talked, and he said, what have you learned from this experience? And I said, I've learned that God doesn't need me. But he uses me, and he uses you, and he uses your prayers. Don't forget that. And then finally, thinking back towards plans. God answers our prayers. But God's answers to our prayers in many cases are not what we expect, aren't they? Even when God's answer is yes, you know, because we say, you know, God answers prayers. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says wait. But even when God's answer to your prayers, whatever it is you're praying about is yes, his divine ways and means are often surprising to us, aren't they? You think about Paul's requests that he made. He prayed that he'd be delivered from unbelievers in Judea, was he? Well, kind of. He got arrested and he was beaten and then he was delivered by Romans, by, by Roman centurions, Romans, Roman soldiers. So yeah, prayer answered, but not quite the way he anticipated. He prayed for mission success, that his gift would be acceptable. You know, there were people in the church in Jerusalem who didn't like Paul. They thought he'd compromised too much with the Gentiles, and he had uh, given away too much of his uh, Jewish uh, heritage. And Paul was genuinely concerned that these people might not want this gift from him because of who he was. 
We don't see anything in scripture explicitly one way or another about whether his gift was accepted, but we assume that it was. But it's not, that doesn't say. And then finally, uh, his prayer is that he'd be able to come to Rome with joy. Well, he came to Rome, but you know how that worked. He was under arrest, and when he arrived in Rome, he didn't come as a, as a beloved brother showing up, traveling, and stopping off in Rome to go to Spain. He came as a prisoner, under arrest, since he had appealed his case to Caesar. So Paul's prayers were answered, but in very unexpected ways. God answers our prayers in similarly, similarly unexpected ways. But always for our good, always for his glory, which is what we should expect, right? Because his, his thoughts aren't our thoughts. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. His plans are higher than our plans. And he has a plan, a perfect plan, to draw the nations to his son. Let's pray. Father, work out your plans and give us joy as you do, as we see the unfolding of your plan from eternity past to build your church and to bless us and to make us a people, to make us kings and priests to you. And we pray you'd add to your church daily such as are being saved and that Christ Jesus will get all the glory for it.